BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'd love to win a Grammy. It's the butter cow, which has nine hearts to represent the nine essential nutrients in milk. That's right, it's made entirely out of butter, and it, you know, it's a state fair tradition since at least 1922. I'm a Trumpocrat. Trumpocrat, that's right. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J. Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9 the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarowski Show as I speak. It's Friday, May 29, 2020. Of course, you're listening to this anytime. By the way, I love the opening D when you play the Blago tape. I'm a Trumpocrat. And the guy, yeah! Okay. I'm a Trumpocrat. <laughs> Trumpocrat, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Trumpocrat. Uh, uh. Oh, Blago, Blago. He's joining me in the podcasting business, D. Uh, come on, Blago. One a week. You can pick up the pace a little bit, right, D? Yeah. All right, Bo. We, we, we work hard at the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, by the way, it's as I said, Friday, May 29th, the New York Times headline. It's got this great chart. The New York Times loves charts. And, you know, since they're locked into the, the their homes and stuff, I think all, like, the, the millennial geeks at the New York Times are, hey, boss, let's come up with a new chart. So this is a chart having to do with the percentage of people in all these big cities uh, that uh, are protect the antibodies for from COVID, that protect them against COVID-19. So great chart, New York Times. Anyway, bonus time to Ben Jarrett's show. As we do uh, on every bonus feature, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. And you're going to recognize this distinguished guest. This distinguished guest has been on the show mm, a few times. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Miles Camp Lassen, the web editor at In These Times magazine, uh, frequent guest on the Ben Jarofsky show, uh, wayward Bulls fan. <laughs> uh, pick, up, pick any category you'd like. Apparently, uh, according to uh, according to Doctor D, I have a little bit of a Jim Morrison look right now because I have not had a corn uh, a haircut in many weeks of quarantine, so just letting it loose. Yeah, he's got that Jim Morrison look going. And uh, he mentioned in these times, and after every interview, uh, Doctor D, the aforementioned Doctor D, you should know this, Miles chastises me because he's radio. <laughs> he's a radio professional. He went to radio school. I just picked this thing up on the sly. He goes, Ben, you always have to ask your guest before you start the interview, what he's been up to lately so he can promote whatever he's done. And don't hold it off to the end. Because we got everybody right now. You I'm know like, what I mean? I'm we like, got God. everyone right now. God damn it. Miles gets it. Yeah, he gets it, man. He's in the business too, okay? Mm -hmm. So, Miles, what's the latest? Give us uh, the scoop on the good stuff you've been doing for in these times. Sure. So, uh, right now, we've got a lot of great coverage. Uh, but the website, I just today edited a piece on a story that's you know, kind of breaking right now and that the National Guard has been sent out to Minneapolis. They just announced a curfew after the uh, 
the protest last night that led to the third precinct uh, police station on fire. Folks probably heard of that. Um, but a group of uh, veterans, actually anti-war veterans, have put out a call for the National Guard to stand down um, and refuse deployment uh, to Minneapolis. And these are people, you know, that were from the military, obviously Trump has called and said the military should go into Minneapolis and stamp things out. So this is a real powerful, I think, call from uh, people that have been on the front lines of America's wars saying that, you know, we should not be investing time or energy in shutting down protesters, but instead we should be encouraging the right to free speech. So uh, that I encourage people to read. There's a bunch of great uh, other content up at any times. And I have a recent article myself up actually at Jacobin on uh, which is jacobinmag.com uh, website, and it's on Mayor Lori Lightfoot and her response to the coronavirus in Chicago, a little bit of a critical look uh, at her overall response. So definitely check uh, both of those things out. All right. Uh, and we'll get to that Lori Lightfoot uh, story that you did, Mayor Lori Lightfoot story. But I want to start, I told you I was going to start with this last, but I'm just on impulsively flipped it to the start. I just finished uh, interviewing uh, Greta Newbaro, state rep from Racine, Wisconsin. It was a great interview, and I want to thank you. Miles helped me set that up. Uh, he and uh, Greta are friends. And he said, you got to talk to this uh, old hippie guy. He's, all, he's not a bad guy. And so she consented to be interviewed. And as she told her story, uh, Miles, the story was that she was uh, you know, born and raised, or at least raised in Racine, Wisconsin, and left to go to college and started her adult career outside of Wisconsin. And then after she saw Donald Trump win the presidency by virtue of the fact that Wisconsin flipped, went from Democrat to Republican, as did Michigan and Pennsylvania, she realized there was important work for her to do on the home front. And so she came home. And I thought that was like a really valuable lesson. I was struck by it when she said that because so many of my... Uh, millennial friends uh, came out of college with big ideas like the biggest problems that the world faces the giant problems if you will that's what they were going to address and I understand that and I applaud their idealism and their commitment to doing that and then they realized that Donald Trump became president in part because Nobody was paying t attention to the local fight, and they allowed the Republicans to take control on a local level, and the Republicans seized control of Wisconsin, decimated the unions there. Uh, they seized control of Michigan, tried to decimate the unions there, weren't as effective as they were in Wisconsin, uh, and similar results in, like, uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And so now people like Greta are returning to their home states and uh, focusing on local issues. I think that's... A, a, like a real important lesson. Sometimes the fights that matter the most are the ones that are on the local level, grassroots level. That was my takeaway from my uh, conversation with Greta. What's your response? I completely agree with that. I think that's why uh, I think that Trump's election had this pretty seismic effect on the world of progressive politics from top to bottom. And I think made people reassess what uh, the strategy had been. And Hopefully, it also had that impact on the Democratic Party wholesale, because as we know, under Barack Obama's presidency, while he retained the office for eight years, over a thousand uh, seats were lost at the local level for the Democratic Party over that period of time, because um, there was just not the investment in state level parties or in recruiting candidates or in supporting those candidates once they were um once they were in place. And as a result, the Republican Party has just taken these massive majorities across the country. We've begun to chip away at that a little bit through, um, you know, in 2018 and 
other cycles. But uh, for the most part, that dynamic is still at play. And the only way to, uh, you know, kind of push back against that tide is to have good candidates running in states that are not have have traditionally, you know, at least not been entirely democratic. And that means having, you know, moving back to places you come from. It's, it, it, I think it's a fine line because you don't want to have people just parachute into a swing state, you know, from, uh, you know, coastal city or something and say, hey, I'm going to change politics here for you. You need people that are from the community or at least have some type of understand the struggles that are going on on the ground. Um, but personally, I'm a huge, I mean, this is it kind of my uh, philosophy about politics is that I think that everything starts at the local level. You've got to build from the bottom up. You've got to have a bench. You know, you have to build a pipeline of candidates in which you can bring people from. Uh, and I think that starts in organizing, honestly. I think the most successful uh, politicians, the people that do the most in terms of fighting for values that uh, working class people need in their lives are people that come out of movement organizing. And you've seen, I think you see that in Chicago with the new uh, crew of, uh, we have our own squad, you know, in the city council of uh, democratic socialists and progressive uh, city council members that are out here, you know, doing things that were pretty unthinkable in city council even just a few years ago in terms of the type of policies they're proposing, the type of fights that they're amplifying. Um, and then, you, you know, you move through these local elections to larger stages, which is important. Um, and, but the only way you do that is by focusing on down ballot races. And this is what I tell also, I'm going a little off the rails here, but this is what I tell my fellow uh, lefties that are, might be very timid about 2020 because we're stuck with a candidate on the Democratic side that many of us did not want to uh, be the nominee almost assuredly will be Joe Biden, you know, somebody who does, yeah. has a mixed record at best in terms of uh, standing on the side of yeah. progressives. So, you know, people say, okay, well, I'm checked out. You know, I'm not going to, I'm going to take November off. Well, there's also elections across in states across the country down ballot that need your support. And by working for candidates like, you know, Nikhil Saval, he's somebody who moved from New York. He was an editor at N plus one magazine. He's now running in Pennsylvania. You can go work on his campaign. And just by doing that, you don't need to campaign for Joe Biden, but just by doing that, you're going to run up the Democratic score. And by doing that, you know, oppose Trump. You don't need to be out there knocking on doors and saying, I want you to vote for a candidate for Joe Biden, you know, a candidate you might not agree with. You can a campaign down ballot and still have an impact on a national level without compromising your values or think you're wasting your time or anything like that. So I implore people, you know, to get invested in that. And also even look here, we're going to have in Illinois, we're going to have a referendum on the fair tax and being able to finally institute a progressive income tax in Illinois. That's something progressives across. I mean, I don't think there's any chance of Illinois going red anyway on a presidential level this year. But if you there's no, still no reason to take November off because there's, you know, so many issues that require getting involved in. So, yeah. So I think Greta is a really good example of uh, what we're going to need to see more of. And just as an aside, I mean, we were talking about this a little earlier offline, but the, you know, if you just had because of the distribution of a population and partisanship in this country, if you just had like a group of progressives move to a state like North Dakota or a state like Wyoming, a, a un, you know, a state with a low population, and you ran a progressive candidate there, you could win a Senate seat, you know, and, and, and flip that from Republican to Democrat with just like 
tens of thousands of people, really small numbers compared to what's required in uh, a lot of these more popular states. So I don't think that that's going to happen like this cycle. But in terms of long term strategy for progressives kind of retaking power in America, I think that uh, moving to areas that are not the coast, that are not the traditional democratic islands is uh, really going to be key. That said, I mean, AOC is in like one of the deepest blue districts as well. So I think we also need to be running in democratic primaries, running progressives against centrists and pushing forward that type of politics at every level. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I was cheering. I was quietly cheering. Dennis doesn't let me. It's like no cheering in the press box. But when you were uh, when you were on that uh, riff, I was cheering. You're absolutely one of my pet peeves is my beloved lefties going, but I don't like Biden. <laughs> you're so spoiled, lefties. What, do you got to love the guy? And, and, and you're just going to take off because you don't love him? You're just going to take off the election? Come on, I'm with you 100%. All right, you don't love Joey B at the top of the ticket. There's plenty of state reps who need your support. Uh, and, man, you could go into a swing district uh, and help a Dem get elected in a swing district. I don't know. I, I'm with you 100%. This notion that I just think it's spoiled, man. It's it, Just people get, like, if they don't get their way exactly in politics, they're just dropping out. Uh, even though there's a lot of work that they could do. Yeah, you don't have to love Joe Biden. And and trust me, when I, I deal with this all the time Miles, or myself. I'm always like shaking my head over Joe Biden when he says something like that. We even talk about the uh, uh, you ain't black quote. I was like, oh, my God, Joey B, you make it so hard for me. Uh, but there's plenty of other. Get involved in the fair tax crusade. That's a perfect example. Like, radically change the way we raise money in the state of Illinois a fair way. So I'm with you 100%. You mentioned Barack Obama. And I'm going to throw this. I didn't even tell you I was going to throw this at you, so be quick on your feet. I had this uh, I, I had this notion. Like I was listening to Barack Obama's response. I don't know if you saw this comment, but I was listening to Barack Obama's uh, he f- response to Donald Trump's presidency. He finally said, I've had enough, and I'm going to criticize Donald Trump. It was in a uh, virtual graduation commencement talk that he gave and uh, a couple weeks ago. And he didn't even mention Trump by name. It was classic Obama. It was so nuanced and subtle. He didn't mention uh, Trump by name. And I was like, I am so sick of this Democratic style. Like, we're above a good fight. You know what I mean? Like, this is one of my pet peeves. And so I wrote this column where I said, I wish for once uh, the Dems would be more like Michael Jordan than Barack Obama. Because Michael Jeffrey Jordan, as you know, because you watched The Last Dance, you're a Bulls fan. Michael Jordan, he never forgot a grudge. And those grudges motivated him for his life. And every encounter on the court was his chance to get vindication to someone who grudge. But here is Trump has totally, like, besmirched the Obama name every way he can, made up all kinds of stories about Obama, destroying Obama's legacy, and Obama can't even criticize him by name. I got a problem with this, uh, Miles. Now, feel free to vigorously disagree with me. A lot of my centrist friends tell me, Ben, you don't understand. He's very uh, savvy. He's above the fray, and that's what you need to be, above the fray. So what are you, are you with me or are you with my centrist friends? Go ahead, Miles. Well, Donald Trump is president, so 
I mean, if you if you believed this, uh, this is what I heard throughout. And I, I'm somebody who you know knocked doors in Gary, Indiana, for Barack Obama in 2008. You know, I was uh, a supporter, a volunteer, and I believed in the uh, hope and change that he was running on. And uh, that said, I was clear-eyed once he announced his cabinet selections. You know, including Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff. This is not going to be the progressive dream many of us had had hoped for. And it's important to be critical, uh, even of, you know, candidates that you support or politicians you support. You've got to keep, you know, keep the fire under their feet or else they're never going to be pushed in your direction. So uh, but the thing is that throughout what I was always told is uh, and this is like a common argument is that he's playing 12 dimensional chess. We don't we don't know the kind of moves he's doing. And in the first term, it was all he's got to do. He's got to, you know, appeal to the blue dogs and give and appeal to bipartisanship and give things away to, you know, John Boehner and all this stuff in order to win a second term where he can finally do the real progressive stuff that we, you know, knew he was actually believes in. And then what happens in his second term? We get things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, which luckily didn't go through, but this was his, you know, NAFTA 2.0. That was just another, you know, uh, offshoring of jobs, corporate giveaways package. Uh, you know, Obama extended the Bush tax cuts. There's so many things that for, for us to be critical and not to talk about, you know, uh, surveillance and uh, drone killings and so many different issues that were angry. And yet what I was always told is, you know, he's playing another game. You don't get what he's doing. Well, he's now Trump is president. So if this is where the game was leading, it's not that it's not going that great. So I completely agree that we need to change. And basically what he did in that commencement speech is what we'd call in the lexicon of posting. He was subtweeting, you know, he was referencing uh, Trump and his administration's response without naming him. Well, you know, that might work as like a fun thing to do online so that you don't have to, um, you know, get in. to a fight with somebody, but you're actually just not addressing the problem head on. And that's not, I don't think that that is a uh, approach that's going to succeed politically in terms of like taking a problem head on. And you see other ways. Look at Rashida Tlaib in, uh, in Michigan. What did she say? She said, we're going to impeach that member. You know, she uh, has been very clear-eyed the entire time about her politics and her viewpoints and everything. And she's shaking things up in uh, in the state of Michigan. I completely concede that this is still Barack Obama's party, by and large. You know, a lot of people thought, if Bernie won, things might change, da-da-da. Well, I think we saw from the mechanizations behind the huge centrist uh, consolidation behind Joe Biden ahead of Super Tuesday. And I think we saw that when uh, Tom Perez defeated Keith Ellison. Uh, That was all kind of behind the scenes maneuvering by Obama and his people in order to make sure that uh, there was not going to be the kind of um, progressive change in direction that a lot of Bernie supporters wanted to see after 2016. So, yeah, I think Obama's still in the driver's seat. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel, that, that Barack Obama, one of his first appointees was Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff. He thought that would be a good idea. It didn't really work out too well for uh, for Barack Obama. He got rid of Rahm as soon as he could. Thank you, uh, Barack, for dropping him on us uh, in the city of Chicago. Uh, but I saw in the newspaper that Joe Biden, 
uh, has been taking advice from Rahm Emanuel. I thought of you immediately. This is one of your pet peeves. Uh, any Democrat listening uh, to Rahm Emanuel, talk a little bit about this, Miles. Yeah, so I mean, I think that that's, <laughs> it's pretty much exactly what we would have expected is that, you know, you've got somebody who worked under, uh, as vice president under Barack Obama, who is now the Democratic uh, presumptive nominee, who is uh, in a position that he's taking advice from Barack Obama's former chief of staff. I think that's exactly, you know, what people might have predicted. The difference is that he's... Uh, been discredited by a large degree. I mean, he was not able to run for a uh, third term as mayor here in Chicago, I think largely because of the resistance to his administration, to Ron Manuel's administration here, because of all the protests, McClellan, McDonald scandal, uh, so on and so forth. But also he just lost his shine. You know, he ran in Chicago as like he worked under Obama. He was going to bring all these, you know, progressive policies to Chicago. Well, look what we got. We got more corporate handouts. We got more social stratification in the city. We got um, a police violence crisis, uh, so on and so forth. And yet now here he is back again, kind of being what whisperer Rom, apparently having these late night phone calls with Joe Biden, at least by his account. That's what he's telling David Axelrod. And we know what he's even admittedly, he says the things that he's telling Joe Biden is that Joe Biden is sounding too much like Bernie, basically. He said, you know, what uh, uh, Joe, that Trump is running on revolution, again, like, you know, his own form of revolution. And Joe Biden ran as the go back to normal candidate and won. But now Joe Biden is running for uh, president as the revolutionary. I heavily disagree with that, you know, uh, take on what Joe Biden's candidacy is like right now. But you have to respond to the times. I mean, that's the only positive thing in terms of what has come out of this uh, COVID-19 crisis, I think, is it has, it, I mean, as I've talked about before on this show and written about, it has uh, led to a huge transfer of wealth from poor Americans to the rich, which is terrible. But it's also changed people's views on, on politics and made them reassess what uh, is needed in order to confront the challenges we have. And it exposed the vulnerabilities of so many working people in our society, whether it's surface workers, whether it's, you know, uh, nurses and hospital staff, whether it's teachers. So we need to change, you know, and the fact that Joe Biden has opened up to being more uh, amenable to some bolder, more progressive solutions is a positive thing. And yet Rahm Emanuel is saying, no, 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 go back to just take back things. You go back to normal, Joe. Like, that's all you need. I think that's terrible advice. And I don't think anybody should be listening to anything Rahm says. I mean, I wrote a whole article called Nobody Should Listen to Anything Rahm Says. Because look, he look what happened in 2006. He supposedly orchestrated this massive uh, democratic takeover of the House with the blue dogs. Well, where are those blue dogs now? They immediately lost their seats. And as I said before, Democrats just got decimated in the cycles to come. So I don't think he's the political genius he's uh, laid out to be. Uh, I'm not shocked that he's still advising uh, advising Biden. But if Biden has any sense, he will uh, kick Rom out of the inner circle. Yeah. Uh, by, by the way, just a, a slight correction. They didn't immediately lose the seats. It took 
the uh, the 2010. They won in 2006. Obama was a huge victory for the Dems, and then they lost their seats. Minor correction, but your point is very well taken. Uh, and they lost their seats. Uh, and in those midterm elections in which Republicans, and this gets back to what I was talking about with Greta, Republicans won so many uh, across the board races, local, state, legislative races, which enabled them in the next cycle of, for redistricting uh, to reshape the maps. And so many Dems, I don't even think they understood what redistricting was. They were so clueless. Uh, so not only did they drop the ball and uh, lose these legislative races, then the, they wake up and they see the Republicans gerrymandering them, so they, it was even that more difficult to take back those legislative races. So you could argue uh, that the bad advice that Rahm gave Democrats in 2006 is hurting us to this day, in, in particularly in And that's why this is such a critical... Exactly. And that's why this is such a critical election, because it's just, I mean, 10 years out from the Tea Party takeover. And that led to, as you said, the redrawing of all these uh, legislative maps and massive gerrymandering that has um, forced Democrats out of power for the past 10 years. And if we're going to change that, we need to have Democrats or at least not Republicans to uh, to win uh, governor's seats and state legislatures so that they can be in charge of redrawing the maps for the, so we don't uh, face another decade of being uh, locked out of power. Yeah. Uh, and then the final uh, little point that I saw in the story that Rahm advised he was giving Biden was Democrats should, ma- should not be so timid about reopening states. I'm telling you, man, he hates lefties. He hates lefties. That's number one on his list. And he's like has this thing, he wants to be a Republican. You know what I mean? Don't be timid, open up. Meanwhile, poor Pritzker is dealing with the f- blowback from these nutcase MAGA hat wearers saying, you know, he's a tyrant for trying to promote safety. You got Rom running around going, open up the states, don't be timid, be a MAGA hat wearer. I'm like, dang, Biden, if you listen to him, you're ins- I'm hoping what Biden's doing. Miles is sort of like, hey, Rom, good point, good point. In one ear out the other you know i'm hoping that's what he's doing exactly i mean there's it's possible that he's doing it but then why i mean you don't owe anything to rahm emanuel what do you why, why even give him the time of day at this point let him to keep biking around lake michigan and you know talking to people about they don't want to lose their health care by getting free health care or whatever the heck that <laughs> rahm emanuel thinks uh, he's, he's hearing on his weird jaunts around the lake i mean here's one thing i will say is that uh these task forces that have been put together um, to work on various issues uh, have been formed through uh, the combination of Bernie Sanders people and Joe Biden's people. They're on a series. Uh, there's a very uh, surprising lack of a foreign policy uh, set of uh, a task force um, at, uh, in, in that group, but there are task forces on issues like healthcare, the economy, immigration, criminal justice, all things that are going to be critical for um, a next president to take up. And there's a lot of great voices on, uh, on those task forces, including uh, Abdul Al-Sayed, who is a doctor, who's a big Medicare for All supporter. He ran for governor in Michigan, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, Sarah Nelson, the head of the Flight Attendance Union, um, some other 
really great uh, progressives that Bernie Sanders uh, put on that panel, or at least, you know, advocated get on there. And those are people that now could also be giving advice to a potential Joe Biden administration. Those are the people that he should be having these late night phone calls with, I'd say, not Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor, who his, his job right now is as a pundit on ABC, and he got fired from his Atlantic job. Uh, but he's still got the Wall Street investment banking job where he's raking in money. Well, that, that these other people are, you know, go ahead. No, I was just say that uh, it's very. If you mentioned the Wall Street investment banker, which re- it's important for Rom to get that message out that he has Joe's ear, because presumably if Biden is elected, he'll be taking advantage of that position on behalf of his clients. So he's promoting his brand when he does this. All right, let's leave Ram alone for the moment, just talking about it is getting me irritated. Uh, let's move on to uh, <laughs> Lori Lightfoot. Uh, we'll, as long as you're talking Ram, I might as well move over to Lori. Uh, and you wrote a very interesting article, you already alluded to it in Jacobin, about Mayor Lori Lightfoot's view in Chicago and her, the view of her outside of Chicago uh, in regards to how she's handling uh, the pandemic. Talk a little bit about this, Miles. So I wrote this uh, piece kind of to give, especially a national audience, a little bit more perspective on uh, what her administration's response has looked like. Um, I don't think that it's gotten tons of national coverage uh, because Chicago didn't have quite the same type of immediate uh, crisis public health crisis as New York did or as Seattle did. Uh, that said, Cook County has now taken over Queens County as the epicent- the county epicenter of uh, coronavirus cases in the country. Um, and we, as we know, there's a, a huge racial disparities in terms of the impact. At, uh, originally, it was uh, African-American neighborhoods that were getting hit hard. Now it's Latino neighborhoods across uh, the city. That is um, the blame for the spread of the virus is not solely on the mayor's office. I think that has much much more to do with the lack of a federal government response um, and huge errors made by the Trump administration and just pure ineptitude when it came to rolling out testing, um, a whole series of things. But now that the virus uh, is here and the outbreak is spread across Chicago, it's on local governments to create the conditions under which people can survive through this crisis. And that means both providing a public health infrastructure, but also providing economic support. Because with the economy shut down, where people have lost their income, by and large. And uh, to take one example of, I think, the errors of Mayor Lightfoot's response, we're in a housing crisis. Uh, according to, and this is uh, understandably, these are the uh, real estate industry's numbers. They say in Chicago, rent collection is down 75%. Um, that's massive uh, and in the past couple months since the, the, uh, the crisis has taken hold. Well, that it has to do with the fact that there's 30% of the whole city is paying more than half of their income on rent, even before the crisis hit. That, their rent burden, so to speak. That's, you know, a huge uh, portion of people's income that's just going to staying in their homes. Uh, I think that's a pretty intolerable status quo as it is, but it's only been heightened by the fact that people don't even have that income in the first place now to pay 
their rent. So what do we need? We need a support for renters. We need support for, you know, small landlords too, who need mortgage relief. Well, what was the uh, Mayor Lightfoot's response? It was uh, first to do this lottery, this housing lottery, that they said they're going to provide some support. And you know about this. This is, you know, these were $1,000 checks that they ended up giving out to 2,000 people. That seems like, you know, it's a nice gesture. But within the first five days of that program getting announced, 83,000 Chicagoans applied for that. And uh, 2,000 ultimately got it. That's uh, just a little over 2% of all the people that applied. And that's just, you know, a small uh, tidbit of the people that are facing uh, personal financial crisis because of the, uh, the, the pandemic. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, the next solution that she brought forward was this housing solidarity pledge, she called. Conspicuously absent from the announcement around this was any housing rights group. So it was all like developers and real estate uh, people that were triumphing this great new pledge, but there's no enforcement on the pledge. And while there is an eviction moratorium uh, in place right now, and Tom Darts, the the sheriff's office might not be carrying out evictions, eviction notices are still piling up. And as soon as that moratorium is lifted, uh, there could be an avalanche of evictions and foreclosures across uh, the city. So, this is a this is a media crisis in an area where the mayor's office could make some real headway by uh, either pushing the governor's office to lift the ban on rent control that exists in Chicago, which he, he could do, um, or even without rent controls, just put city money towards rent relief. I mean, one good thing I think that the mayor's office has done is announced this uh, contract tracing program where they're spending, I think, like $50 million or so to hire um, people to do contract tracing for the city. So, you know, when you do, when you get tested, you get a positive test result from your uh, COVID-19 test, the city would hire people to then tell people that have seen that person that they've been exposed, that they need to quarantine. I think that this is a critical uh, step in public health to uh, allow us to reopen our economy. So it's a good thing the city is doing. But if we can spend money doing that, we can spend money towards rent relief so that people are not being uh, unable to pay and face the possibility of being evicted. Because look, if you need, if you want people to stay at home, you need to create the economic conditions which allows them to stay home. And that means doing things like uh, uh, rent abatement. It means things like providing some level of income. Um, it means to, uh, you know, allow, open up public parks, allow people to have space where they can, uh, you know, socially distance safely from one another. And a lot of these things, and, and have access to food as well. A lot of these things have been proposed through the right to recovery package, which I know you, um, know of well. It's been pushed by United Working Families and a whole, group of about like 50 social movement groups in Chicago are behind it, including the CTU, uh, many others. And the right to recovery package includes a lot of things like uh, providing health care, including free testing and treatment around um, COVID-19, providing rent abatement, and a whole suite of other policy packages. So um, those kind of things have been proposed. And a number of people on the city council, including the aforementioned squad, uh, local squad of democratic socialists, meaning like Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, 
Daniel Espada, Byron Sigcho Lopez, uh, Jeanette Taylor, Andre Vasquez, they've, uh, you know, them and other progressives have gotten behind these types of policies and pushed them. Matt Martin has a, has a, a proposition to give rent relief for a year. It wouldn't just get rid of rent, but it would at least give people breathing room to um, get back on their feet before they're required to pay. So it's not like these things are pie in the sky. They have been proposed and they're out there. And the mayor's office has just not come out in support of them. So as much as I know a lot of her supporters would like to portray her as this uh, progressive champion in the midst of this crisis, I just think the facts on the ground don't really uh, support that uh, view of, uh, of the reality on the ground. So that's why I wanted to write the piece to kind of show a national audience that things are a little bit more complicated than just the stay at home memes that people are probably familiar with when it comes to Lori Lightfoot. Yeah, no, it's always welcome. Uh, a local voice try to explain Chicago uh, to out-of-towners because it's so funny, the preconceptions they have about the city uh, and our mayors and our all-powerful mayors who always seem to be loved, beloved outside of the city. Uh, the, by the way, those uh, conflicts that you were talking about will be really at play. We'll be talking about a lot of, of them a lot down the road in the city of Chicago, the struggle between progressives and centrists uh, here in the city of Chicago, because it's always a struggle. Just imagine how it's, what it's going to be like, Miles, when there's a huge budget crisis uh, as we emerge from this pandemic. So we'll be talking about that much more down the road. Uh, we're going to close with this, our, our, our regular uh, vice presidential check-in with you. And uh, it's be, probably be about two weeks before we get to talk to you again, and because we're taking next week off. So, what's your? It, it may be possible that Joe Biden will select a running mate in these two weeks. So, where are you? Uh, uh, where are you at these days, Miles? In terms of one, the person you would like to see him take, and keep in mind, he says he's going to uh, pick a, a woman as his running mate. One, who you would like to see him take, and two, who do you predict he will take? Go ahead. Well, I'll add a third in there if I could. I think that uh, there, I have a, you know, my a dream candidate uh, for vice president would be somebody like a Pramila Jayapal, who's the head of the um, Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, she's a representative out of Washington. She's a huge Medicare for All backer. Um, she's brilliant. She's uh, been a real leader, I think. And um, she she's on one of these t task forces as well. Uh she, I think, would be an excellent running mate. She's a woman of color. She's got great political instincts. Um, somebody like Barbara Lee would be great, I think, uh, out of California, who was, you know, one of the sole vote against the uh, uh, war in Iraq. She has also just been a, a progressive champion. Maxine Waters, also, you know, another woman of color from California. I think these types of folks politically would be more uh, my ideal, and that I think they would represent a real progressive voice in a Biden administration. Uh, that said, I don't think any of them are being considered whatsoever. I mean, it's been floated that he's got about ten people that are being vetted right now, uh, and who knows? It could all be smoke. We, 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 the names aren't out there. The names we do know that are being seriously considered are Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, uh, and Elizabeth Warren. There's a few others as well. Gretchen Whitmer um, has been floated, Stacey Abrams, but the main three so far have been Warren, Klobuchar, and Harris. Well, this uh, horrible tragedy in Minnesota, I think, highlights all the flaws that come with choosing Amy Klobuchar and that 
you know, Biden, as you mentioned earlier, he's already had this horrible gaffe on the breakfast club saying you ain't black if you don't support me. Um, Amy Klobuchar has a long history of uh, as a prosecutor refusing to go after police misconduct charges. And I don't think that is going to win Joe Biden any points in terms of turning out, especially the young black vote. I think that's going to be really critical. I think a lot of older African-American voters are understandably not going to vote for Trump. But you need to really run up numbers in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and even Ohio um, if you want to uh, win, I think, at this uh, in, in these swing states in 2020. And I think you're going to need young African-American voters for that. And Amy Klobuchar is not going to do you any favors in that realm. She's also, I think, politically very problematic. She's opposed to all parts of the progressive agenda. Um, and Kamala Harris, I, I mean, she's made some efforts lately through um, partnering with progressives to support uh, uh, more bold responses to the coronavirus bill. But she also has a history as a prosecutor that is uh, troubled at best. Um, and I don't think she's shown herself to be, I mean, I don't, I, I didn't love her performance at the debates. I think that her, um, uh, campaign had a lot of issues and caused her, she, you know, she initially was thought to be, would be one of the last people standing in that race. And it clearly did not turn out that way. Who, uh, who went even farther than her though was Elizabeth Warren. And I think out of those three, for me, Elizabeth Warren would by far be the best pick for, for Joe Biden, both because, um, she can excite some progressives and some part of the Bernie wing of the party that is going to need to be brought on board. Uh, and I think just having, for me, having a voice like that, that is willing to challenge and has challenged Joe Biden on these issues and pushed forward progressive policies, that's going to be critical to have in the White House. And I think uh, Elizabeth Warren is the only person out of those people being considered who will uh, who will accomplish that. The final one of who I think it'll be, I think right now my money would be on Harris, um, just because of how much flack Biden got for that Breakfast Club interview. And I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd hope he would go with the person he thinks he can work the best with, because he obviously served as vice president for eight years. But I think his advisors are up in arms over, you know, him being a gaff machine and thinking they need to uh, hold on to the African-American vote. Not that the African-American vote is going to go to Trump, but you need these people to still come out and, and, and vote and you need to appeal towards, uh, towards that constituency. So that's what, that, that's my prediction. I also predicted that, I think I predicted the bears were going to have like a, a crazy winning season last year. So uh, I don't know how much stock to put in it. I, I predicted the bears, uh, 19 and 0 Super Bowl champs. So don't take any predictions from me. I am so through with the bears. Don't even talk to me about the bears. Mitch Trubisky. I don't even want to talk about the bears. It could have Patrick Mahomes. You had a mention the bears uh miles uh we got nick Foles now though okay all right yeah we can, still not patrick mahomes but uh better than mitch trubisky uh miles stay safe and sound uh maybe the next time we talk to you we'll be back in the studio and uh we'll see we'll see how it goes uh with the pandemic yeah. all right miles take care of yourself that's miles conflas and i'm ben jarofsky take care everyone